Welcome back to 12 Pack Radio, your weekly podcast for Pac-12 football and gambling news. We're excited to talk about Oregon with the Solid Verbal's Dan Rubenstein. But if you're new, this is part six of our 12-part series breakdown of each Pac-12 team. We go position by position and stick around for the the regular season. We're going to rock conference previews, reviews, uh, weekly gambling lines, and a number of contests for prizes. You can listen to the podcast on our website, wildcatradioaz.com, where there's a ton of Pac-12 content. Uh, We have articles, advanced college football football statistics from beta rank and listener contest you can go there to participate in our pac-12 survivor pool which we just launched to pick up basically you pick one pac-12 team to win each week if they're victorious you advance if they lose you're out and we will read all the people that are eliminated on the podcast it's a great way to keep up with the season uh, wildcatradioaz.com we have the rules and how to sign up there um, follow the podcast on Twitter, 12 Pack Radio, 12 PAC Radio. And of course, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other podcast catchers. I am joined by our regular host, Mr. Rob Bowron, the data scientist behind the BetaRank College Football Advanced Statistical Model. What's going on, Rob? Uh, I'm excited to be here and talking about the Ducks. We've been like, this is the third podcast we'll do in a row. The, the things we do for everybody <laughs> to make sure that we get some West Coast football representation here. And, um, our guest is uh, from a podcast that I've been listening to probably for seven or eight years. It's been a long time, and it's continued to grow in creativity and the way that they continue to change things up. I think it's the best national college football podcast out there, and that's the Solid Verbal. And Mr. Dan Rubenstein, what's going on, Dan? Not too much. Just trying not to sweat in my now warm apartment. I turned off the air conditioning because I'm very considerate about audio. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Rob does the same, too. So we're <laughs> great minds. <laughs> so it doesn't alike. sound like I'm in a, a jet engine test tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, tell us a little bit about what's going on with the solid verbal, because you guys are just blowing through uh, episodes right now, which I've been consuming at a high rate. Uh, yeah, we're doing previews for every division in college football, both of power five schools and not as long, but group of five divisions. And uh, but doing that July and August, we conclude at the end of this week. And there's a lot of information, but you can listen to it. And sometimes people get hurt and kicked off teams and switch positions. And we mispronounce things. But by and large, I think they're pretty good. And yeah, that's we we had a we released shirts in a store earlier this summer. We're doing a live show as we record this midweek, this coming Saturday in Chicago. I take off for there tomorrow. So life is life is good, man. Life is good and fast. Uh, you guys are cranking yeah. out to two podcasts a week. And, and where can people find you if, on Twitter? Uh, Brazzers. No, um, <laughs> they can they can find me. Dan Rubenstein uh, or Solid Verbal. S-O-L-I-D-V-E-R-B-A-L. Right on. Well, let's talk about the Pac-12 here because uh, it's a funky conference, a lot of really yes. good talent, and it, it's kind of hodgepodge here and there. And I'm really excited about talk about Oregon because I do think this is a team that um, can really surprise a lot of people this year. But in the general national landscape here, where do you think the Pac-12 sits when it stacks up to other Power Five conferences? They are squarely, in my mind, third or fourth. It, it's hard to say. I like. I. I don't pay a lot of attention to ranking conferences in terms of how good they are because everybody has different views about what makes a conference good or better than another conference i tend to look at things in terms of tv show and entertainment value so there's a lot of entertainment value going into this season with the big 10 there's a lot of entertainment value with the sec 
But part of that with the SEC is the fact that we have Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. We have a, a rotating cast of assistants at LSU. We have Dan Mullen at Florida and Chad Morris at Arkansas, Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State. There's new coaches. The ACC is interesting, I suppose, because of Willie Taggart in Florida State. It's going to take me a little bit of time to fully <laughs> make peace with that. But um, it, it really does come down to interest level, not necessarily like, oh, the, this conference has the best three teams or this conference has the best eight teams. Um, so I, I, I look at the Pac-12 right now and I say they're interesting because there's a lot of quarterback intrigue. And there are there are specific players and coaching situations that I'm interested in. We're going to talk about Oregon. So obviously I have a personal tie to that. But even both schools in Arizona with new coaches and Chip Kelly, the beloved, my beloved, (laughs) returning to UCLA. So I I think the Pac-12 is right there in terms of interest, in terms of quality of football, depth of talent. The Pac-12 is still probably in like that three and a half zone. Yeah, that makes sense. But the one good thing though, is there's a lot of players that pop out when you take a look at this sure. conference, whether it's Khalil Tate, Justin Herbert, and we were talking quarterbacks, but also Bryce Love. And then on the defense, you have players like Troy Dye, who are also on Oregon. And um, it's interesting that the Pac-12 has become a conference of young, talented corners, which is really funny, yeah. like both at, at Oregon and Stanford. There's just a bunch of places. Uh, Utah has a bunch of young guys. So it's really interesting to see all of these different players that pop out. Um, I guess the first question about Oregon is you mentioned the uh, the bolting of Willie Taggart very quickly from Eugene mm-hmm. uh, down to Tallahassee. He leaves uh, Mario Cristobal. You have an awesome defensive coordinator. Can you just talk a little bit about the staff that remains in Eugene and what they bring to this program as they try to build? Sure. The uh, the big one is Jim Levitt, you know, who stays on and was paid like 1.7 million i want to say a year Good for him he deserves that though by the which way which is yeah. yes he is the highest paid assistant i believe in i know in oregon history i don't know i think maybe pac-12 history but maybe i'm mistaken um so he's the big one to me. They lose Charles Clark, who's a very good corners coach, but largely stay intact. They bring Alex Mirabal on to take Mario Cristobal's place on the offensive line as Cristobal moves to head coach, and he is well-regarded and goes way back with Mario Cristobal. He was most recently at Marshall. Um, so he is seen as a, a positive addition. Dante Williams, I think, is the huge one in terms of recruiting. He takes over for Charles Clark, and he is also – uh, well-traveled within the Pac-12. You know, I think he was at Arizona for a season, I want to say. Cup of coffee, but he, yeah. 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 Yes. And uh, so he he has been around and has forged a lot. He's, he's sort of looked at as a big Southern California recruiter. So that seems to be a big addition in terms of recruiting and hopefully on the field, I guess, yet to be seen. But the guys that come back are are pretty strong. Joe Salavea did a nice job with the defensive line. Um, I, I am in, encouraged by what's happening on the defensive side of the ball and running backs wise, Jim Mastro has been in the conference and, you know, is, is sort of one of the, the big architects of the pistol offense back to his days at Nevada and did a good job. You know, all of a sudden Washington state could run the ball these past couple of years. <laughs> and so they are going into a pistol look. Uh, I think a good chunk of that offense largely because of Jim Mastro and his abilities to, uh, to, to become an architect for that look. So, it's it becomes interesting. I think he is a master also has a good reputation as a recruiter. I am encouraged by basically everything because of what I've seen either at Oregon or at other places, both on the field and recruiting 
My big question, assistant-wise, is Marcus Arroyo was promoted to offensive coordinator. He's occupied that position. He's been a quarterback's coach, a receiver's coach, uh, I believe receivers, but also has coordinated offenses both in the NFL and uh, in college. But I don't have a concept for what his passing background is going to look like with Jim Mastro and the ground game. So to me, it's it's a question of what is Oregon trying to do in the Cristobal Arroyo Mastro era. I, I have an, I imagine it's going to be like a tempo spread Stanford pistol, but that those are just words. I'm shouting into my <laughs> microphone. So, <laughs> no, I, I have no concept. I'm very curious, but that is to me the question mark about how these assistants come together with this Oregon team. If they do come out with a two tight end tempo offense, that would be something I would. <laughs> I mean, and it's something that they did with Chip Kelly. They did yeah. put two tight ends on the field and they did run tempo. I am curious to see now that Oregon's offensive linemen are like 40 pounds heavier than they were mm-hmm. 30 pounds heavier than they were under the, uh, the Helfrich Chip Kelly days, how that works with the spread with pulling and with tempo, because as I think we and everybody listening to this knows, it becomes more difficult to move quickly when you're carrying extra weight. <laughs> and I don't know exactly how that's going to look, but I imagine it, we're all just talking about elements here, not necessarily a defining characteristic. Well, I think that's why Oregon's so interesting this year, because there are so many question marks on the ske- uh, schematical point, which I hope is a word. Um, on sure, that front, Yeah, well, you know, add it in there. Um, from, from a scheme standpoint, there's some question marks. On the field, though, you definitely have some legit talent. And then when you look at some of the players that you're coming, you see coming in, the fact that you have Dante Williams and Joe Salavea, there is a reason that Oregon is just cleaning up on the recruiting trail right now. It's because they have people like that, and they have coaches behind them that can say, hey, I can train you up. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, but this is going to be a show me year in the sense of, okay, what do we have here at Oregon? And sure. Rob, you have some stats from the Beta Rank uh, college football model uh, that kind of highlight what we saw out of Oregon in 2017. Granted, it's kind of funky because he had Braxton Burmeister and Justin Herbert. I think it was the tale of two teams. But what does the data yep. say about Oregon in 2017? Yeah, and it's not just that uh, Herbert was hurt. It was that he was hurt mostly when they played very, very good defenses, the few mm-hmm. deep, very good defenses that were in the Pac-12. So when he came back, uh, everyone sort of got very excited about, you know, the games he put up at Air- against Arizona and Oregon State, but those were two of the very worst defenses in college football. Um, so Oregon's offensive numbers sort of suffer, I think, from that. And that it's, it's a way that you don't necessarily get quite as good of a read on that team because of not just that Herbert was injured, but who he was injured against. So they ranked out at 80th. Um, they weren't great at drive efficiency, ranking out at 99th, uh, but they were fairly explosive. So they weren't always able to put together long drives to score points. But much as Oregon sort of has been since you know Chip Kelly came in, uh, they were able to put up you know big chunks of yards and put up points that way. They were a much better rushing team than they were a passing team, uh, ranking 109 in passing and 28th in effective rush. A lot of that, again, is I think that you have Burmeister in there and he looked a lot like a true freshman um defensively huge improvement i mean they ranked out so poorly in that last year uh before jim levitt joined uh dropping all the way into the 120s in beta rank but jumping all the way up to 42 last year 
they were really terrific at drive efficiency. So they were able to keep teams um, from putting together long drives. Uh, they could definitely clean up some of the explosiveness. They, they ranked 54th in that. So they did, they were somewhat susceptible to giving up bigger plays, but uh, I think they're also young. So that's something that I would look for them to again, clean up as they, uh, they age a little more into Jim Levitt's system. They were, a little more, I mean, they're 37th against the run, 53rd against the pass. Again, I think they can clean up. I think they had a young secondary last year, and I think some of that can get cleaned up. Hey, Dan, does that make sense? Does that kind of uh, jive with what you saw on the field when you were watching Oregon this year or this past year? Not at all. No, of course it does. Um, <laughs> yes, um, that all makes sense. And, you know, he put it, Rob put it into good context because of, you know, the offensive numbers are hard to, to fully go by because, yeah. you know, even against UCLA, I don't think Justin Herbert would have beaten Washington at Washington, but against a team like UCLA, even last year's Washington State team, which offensively took a pretty significant step backward on offense and forward on defense, really. Um, this Oregon offense was much different. And I, I like to think about the push pull of how offense affects defense, your own defense and your own offense. Whereas, you know, if, if Justin Herbert is on the field, then this Oregon offense is more efficient. They're putting together longer drives. Even if they're not scoring drives, the defense then rests and is put into better starting field position and is able to capitalize a little bit more, get more stops and perhaps win games, get players into rotations that otherwise wouldn't have been. Um, Oregon should be better on all three levels than they were last year. They started two freshmen by the end of the season on the defensive line and Jordan Scott and Austin Faulu, Faulu, whatever his name may very well be. And that's in addition to having Jalen Jelks, who, you know, played on a, an all conference level last year in terms of how much he was in the backfield and how disruptive he was. Um, I'm still quite worried about the secondary and, you know, Rob correctly pointed out that they were really young last year, but they're super thin at safety. They have a couple of uh, freshmen coming in. Javon Holland is somebody that I think will get some time and a, and a look at safety. Um, cornerback, they started two, two true freshmen by the end of the year and are going to be counting on some junior college guys and uh, some freshmen this year to probably work into the rotation. So there will be lumps in the secondary and they are playing against good quarterbacks, but they don't play USC. UCLA doesn't have a quarterback at the moment that should scare anybody. And it, you know, the rest, you know, KJ Costello was pretty good last year for Stanford. Jake Browning can be very good and has been very good against Oregon. But I, I don't see the situation being such that there's a Baker Mayfield. There is even a Sam Darnold. And I like Khalil Tate, but there's nobody who looks stands in the pocket and is just going to shred this Oregon defense because of how good they should be up front and that there is talent in the back end. So all of what Rob said made sense to me i think they're going to be probably a top 30 defense and maybe a higher offense depending because the offensive line should be very very good even losing royce freeman they have talent at running back again it, to me it comes down to what they're actually looking like what they're playing like what what that scheme is receivers should be solid but these past couple of years have been a pretty big downturn from where Oregon has been at receiver these past few years, just stock, you know, going five, six, seven deep with really talented guys. They did. They're just sort of stocked at receiver with dependable talent, not necessarily game breaking talent, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, they bring in Tabari Hines from Wake Forest, who was their lead receiver last year. Uh, Dylan Mitchell, by the end of the season became a go-to guy, but in terms of who is jumping out and you mentioned the, uh, the set, not the secondary, but a, a number of young promising corners in the PAC 12, there's nobody, nobody on this Oregon team that should put the fear of life 
into anybody in, in their secondary. And it's too bad because this is, has been a team that has had that guy most recently being Darren Carrington, but still promising and guys that could become like B plus a minus type guys. Sure. And we want to go position by position into Oregon here, but before sure. we do, you know, you touched on the defense, the jump, whether it's from, by the way, for people that are new to the podcast. So uh, Rob Bowron runs a statistical model. It's an advanced uh, stats college football model uh, called beta rank, which is an alternative to S and P and they both have just different factors that they put in. And the, the, the both of them are quite good. And whether it's beta rank S and P or just regular general statistics have you seen on a national stage when's the last time you've seen a defense make the jump that Oregon did under Jim Levitt from 2016 to 2017 because that's it was just astounding to see how much better they were uh Purdue was incredible from 2016 to 2017 with that coaching change Nick Holt did a very good job and when Tom Allen got to, I guess it was a couple of years ago when he became the defensive coordinator at Indiana, I remember that jump was pretty significant. If you remember those Kevin Wilson offenses putting up huge numbers, you know, great running backs, Tevin Coleman. And when Tom Allen came in and he was also super good for Willie Taggart to tie this all together at USF. And when Tom Allen left USF, Willie Taggart's defense sort of went to hell. So that's a good way to look at things of what happens when a person leaves with the same players, what happens when somebody comes in and the players are relatively similar. Purdue happened to have a lot of experience. This was a a junior and senior laden uh, defensive front last year, but it does happen. And a lot of it is just caring, realizing where people are playing out of position, teaching in an understandable way to, to pick up keys and assignments and Oregon didn't necessarily have the talent going into the season. I thought Jordan Scott was a huge late addition to Willie Taggart's sole recruiting class at Oregon. And <laughs> so was Austin Fowlou. Those guys came in and played pretty quickly. Jordan, Jordan Scott started immediately. So, and, and Troy Dye being a revelation pretty quickly was a, a big deal too, as a sophomore. So um, it happens. And a lot of it just happens to be, you know, common sense stuff, communicating better, putting people in the, in the right position. It doesn't always happen, but there are certain situations like Oregon's defense wasn't as bad as Brady Hoke's version and uh, Don Pelham's versions would have you think. They weren't good, but they weren't atrocious. They were just coached poorly and became atrocious, but their <laughs> ceiling was higher than embarrassing it it certainly helps to bring in jim levitt and then also have a bunch of you know fairly highly regarded recruits sitting around i mean the the you know the the sculptor needs the the clay if you are the Mm -hmm. marble if you will you know and oregon certainly had it ready to be sculpted and put into that defense um and the the model again thinks they're going to take another jump this year i think uh, the preseason model has them going all the way up to 24 on defense this year they should yeah they get better at linebacker uh, and more experienced at linebacker. They bring in a, a pretty well-regarded assistant there in Court Dennison, who comes over from Louisville, also a good recruiter and should be familiar to Pac-12, Pac-10 fans, played at Washington not so long ago. Um, so will be better at linebacker. And up front, you know, adding experience of Jordan Scott and now Jalen Jelks deciding to come back and looking like a top two-round, perhaps, draft pick, two- or three-round draft pick. So there's, there's every reason to assume that Oregon's defense should look pretty good, at least, if not good. 
Right on. Well, let's shift over to the offense here because I think everybody's eyes are on Justin Herbert, although there are a number of other talented players on this Oregon team. 67.5% completion rate. He threw for about 2,000 yards, 15 touchdowns, five interceptions. Again, he was hurt last year. Um, mm-hmm. Averaged about 4.2 yards per carry with five touchdowns on the ground. It was really the tale of two quarterbacks. He had Braxton Burmeister. And, and I, I do want to go a little light on Burmeister here because when you looked at Khalil Tate, his freshman year when they threw him into the fire, he just looked like a deer in the headlights too. So I'm hoping that Burmeister really gets it together and and hopefully he'll learn and develop with this coaching staff. With that said, 57.1% completion rate. He, I think the biggest knock on him was he only averaged about four yards per pass. So you're just these little dinks and dunks. And it was so limiting to that offense and allowed defenses to creep up and do a lot of cool things because they knew he wasn't going to throw down the field. Two touchdowns, five interceptions, averaged about 1.6 yards per carry. So, obviously Justin Herbert is going to be the guy what makes him such a special quarterback in the Pac-12 so he is by all accounts he's a sponge he's a he's a very quick learner even when he came in you know there was talk that like oh he learns and applies and not talking talent wise in the same way that Marcus Mariota immediately did and that's a huge deal for quarterbacks coming in and making the transition adjusting to the speed adjusting to a playbook And there was something about him physically. If you remember, Justin Herbert wasn't really recruited at all. He's from Eugene. Even Oregon didn't recruit him until late. He had a big injury his junior year of high school and didn't really go to camps because he was playing basketball and baseball. And so he was sort of an afterthought, whereas your comparison to Khalil Tate isn't wrong with Braxton Burmeister because Khalil Tate came in with obvious talent, obvious results. People knew who he was. I think he was a four-star out of high school. And even though he struggled early, You knew that there were talent. You knew that athletically he had a pretty high ceiling. With Burmeister specifically, it's not there. Braxton Burmeister is not a starting Pac-12 caliber quarterback. And that's okay. Some people, I'm not. I assume both of you aren't. But Braxton Burmeister was thrown into a situation in which he wasn't going to succeed uh, with the offense, especially built around Justin Herbert's talents and Braxton Burmeister himself even being a last-minute addition because of a loss of scholarship quarterbacks. Uh, what makes Justin Herbert special, though, is is that sponginess, is the fact that he has deceptive athleticism, which we like to say about white guys, I guess, but he can move a little <laughs> bit. At, you know, at 6'6", he's not a statue. He had that, as I'm sure you guys remember, he had like, a, what, a 40-yard touchdown run against the Wildcats last year mm-hmm. in Eugene. Um, so he can move around a little bit. He's accurate. He's decisive. He's got a great arm. Um there aren't any character concerns about him. I don't even think he is. I mean, there's, it's a big deal in Oregon things. He's not on social media. So he's just sort of like he's 20 going on 20. He's not this like extraordinary. He doesn't carry himself like a 30 year old, but he's just like a quiet dude who has really good games against teams that aren't so good. And part of that is because of injury missing the, uh, the Stanford and Washington games last year. But if he does, if he did have a, an excellent game that you can point to, it's probably against a team who wasn't that good. He was really good against ASU last year in the desert in a loss. And the, the last drive or last couple drives of those games were super ugly. And that's on him as well. He did not look good. I would say his best games are probably the it was his, pro, his single best game was probably the Arizona game this year. And Arizona was fine and kind of wild cardy and pretty good, but Arizona didn't finish the season as a team that you're looking at Justin Herbert as having a signature win against a good team. It's Arizona's not there yet. Justin Herbert doesn't have that yet. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I think that uh, in particular with he's they're going to need him to carry the load because as, as we talk about the running backs, uh, you know, they are they're losing some significant production there. And I wouldn't say that Oregon, they've recruited very well at running back. But I think that there is some question, given how the bowl game sort of played out uh, mm-hmm there against Boise state, whether the running backs can, can carry the load. And I, I mean, I think there's a question too, with the Royals offense. I mean, Oregon's been more of a run based spread offense, uh, since chip Kelly came on. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Herbert, I would, I would certainly throw the ball more <laughs> having, sure. having a quarterback like that. Um, but can you make that sort of programmatic switch, you know, midstream? I mean, when you look at these running backs, you have, you know, Darian Felix, comes back he had 30 rushes 182 mm-hmm. yards pretty good you know yards per carry lots of backup running backs have pretty good yards per carry um but then it gets like uh, a lot of projection uh, is there anyone that i mean do you think this running back group can you know carry the load coming into this year yeah i think it's going to be a lot more by committee than it has been over the years you know starting with jonathan stewart and Lamichael james yeah. Legarrette blunt and now royce freeman starting for four straight seasons It'll be more by committee. Tony Brooks James has been a really good home run second option, you know, as they start you know, going a little bit more laterally and going towards the edge and not being a power team. They're going to be more power based and more inside power based. And, you know, Mario Cristobal has talked about the fact that he wants sort of an NFL mindset and, you know, it's hat on hat blocking more. You know, Oregon's been traditionally a zone blocking team. And so a lot of pin and pull and a lot of double teams and that kind of thing. So. I, I imagine that's when I say Oregon is trying to be like tempo Stanford. Um, I think that's what Oregon is trying to do. They've, they've put on weight on a lot of these offensive linemen. They've upped the lifting program. They're lifting, you know, three, four times a week during camp, which is like almost never done uh, in a lot of places. So I think they're really building towards a, a big strength of power running. And I guess the name to know, I, I think Darian Felix is good. I think he, he can be a very nice player for Oregon. Um, the new name would be CJ Verdell who redshirted last year and is built solidly. I think we'll remind people of, you know, maybe a a Kenyon Barner, like a a slightly bigger version of LaMichael James. I don't know if he has that home run ability of Kenyon Barner, but I I think that's the new name. I think he is somebody who could be running with the ones more than we realize, because I think he is built to, and his game is such that he could become somebody that, you know, handles 70% of the carries. So that would be the new name. But yeah, I, I really do think they are going to be much more between the tackles than they have been in recent years. I don't know that they're going to throw a ton, and I, I'm with you that they probably should think about it, given Herbert's strength and the strength of this offense. The problem is re- they don't go super deep at receiver that they can count on. Yeah. So who are you throwing to? They bring in Kano Dillon, I believe, from USF. That's how you pronounce his name. So him and Cam McCormick and Jacob Breland all seem fine. Nowhere on the level of some of the better recent Oregon tight ends and receiver Johnny Johnson flashed a little bit early last season. Dylan Mitchell by the end of last season, Jalen red is somebody who could actually play on offense and defense, but there isn't, there isn't somebody if, if they're throwing the ball 35, 38 times a game, the question then becomes how and to whom, because <laughs> as we all know, if you if you're throwing the ball two out of three downs on your own side of the field and you don't get a first down, you're both off the field quickly and the clock is stopping quickly and you are putting your defense in a pretty terrible position. So I think in terms of sensibility, Mario Cristobal and Jim Mastro and probably Marcus Arroyo would be thrilled to be to still 
continue and become a power rushing team that happens to throw rather than the opposite. Hey, you talk about good TV. I think watching Oregon try to figure out how they're going to run this offense with the, yeah. the I mean, that, that'll just be good TV <laughs> in itself. You know, it's interesting when you look at the receivers, I always saw Oregon treating their, their wide receivers in the traditional sense as more of a hobby where you didn't have a lot of guys just streaking right down like the sides and doing verticals. It was always kind of the small guys being able to get the ball in space. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, for, it took a team like Utah, a team that is not known for developing their wide receivers, to show what Darren Carrington can do in a traditional mm-hmm. offense and just the fact that he exploded under that. So it'll be really interesting to see how, like you're mentioning, how Oregon is able to integrate all of these different parts into a completely new offense. And um, I think that's must-see TV. Let's move to the offensive line here real fast. This was sure. uh, Mario Cristobal's specialty. You mentioned that he brought in another person to kind of develop those players, but I, I would assume that he'll have some hand on this offensive line they lose two starters but they return five guys that had 88 starts um can you just comment on the starting five that they have there and whether or not there's some depth behind that starting five sure um this was a pretty good unit last year again sort of hard to tell with how predictable the offense became with braxton burmeister and everybody loading the box and forcing him to throw but they appear to be happy with everybody jake hansen i think is an all-conference quality center uh, they they have a big loss in Tyrell Crosby, who was drafted, I, I want to say, in the first three or four rounds of the NFL draft. Um, but other than him, they return a ton of experience. They have, I know, a, a JC guy who redshirted last year and George Moore, who is going, who is pretty gigantic, and he will work into the uh, the rotation. I actually shouldn't say he's gigantic because now that they've been recruiting 360-pound dudes, those are the gigantors. Um so they should be fine. The big question about this offensive line was this Oregon was one of the most and probably the most Pac-12 um, penalized team. This was a, a team oh. that shot itself in the foot a ton, especially up front on offense. This is, you know, the false starts and the holds were completely unacceptable and, and been a, a focus of what, you know, this this new staff, I guess, and Mario Cristobal as the head coach, they've tried to do this offseason. It's getting them to be. 10 times more disciplined because even though there is experience, even though the offensive line is a strength, it doesn't matter if the offense is starting out at first and 15, you know, more often than not or something like that. So if this offensive line is even average in terms of discipline, they will, the offense will be very grateful for it. Um, New names coming in. I mentioned George Moore who redshirted last year, but they brought in, three pretty enormous players that might see be some see some time excuse me and the big name there is Penay Sewell I don't know how to pronounce his name yet but that's my best guess um he was a top probably five or six offensive lineman in the country coming in as a high school recruit he is a true freshman this year reports are such that he there's no way to keep him off the field so he is already you know getting reps at right tackle maybe inside he'll play on the right hand side he is an enormous guard slash tackle from utah his decision came down to alabama and oregon chose oregon and he should be a wrecking ball for this offensive line for three, four years to come. Uh, the other big name, Stephen Jones, it was a, a well-regarded recruit from Southern California, blue chip offensive lineman. Un- we're talking another 350 pounder. And then Justin Johnson from the Philadelphia area, somebody else who tip- who's tipping the scales 350 plus. So nice. I think they're going to need to take off some weight, but from where this offensive line has been, you're talking about, super effective you're t- you know Oregon led the Pac-12 in rushing 
the entirety of the Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich era. And it wasn't particularly close, but they were doing so with athletic offensive linemen at like 285, 290. And now they're going to reverse course and go to about 315 to 340. And um, those guys are going to play, especially Sewell. But Sewell is, you know, 360 pounds, whatever he is. So I imagine they'd like to have him closer to 340. But uh, they will be... If, if the offensive linemen work out, and that is probably the position group that they have recruited the best these past couple of years and continue to do so moving forward in this current class, um, Oregon should be able to get what they want on the ground. Yeah, I, I think that sounds right. And I think when you look at the line, too, that there is there is the possibility to run something. If they switch to the pistol, that, that'll look something a lot like a, a single back power. Mm-hmm. Um and I think when you look at this line, you could see them running something like that, even with even if maybe they don't get down below 300 on some of these guys. Uh, that, that may mean your tempo isn't quite as, as you know fast as it was during the NASCAR Chip Kelly days. Sure. But um, I do think that they could still you know be snapping it, you know, with some some time left on the play clock and moving the ball. Um but on the defensive line, mm-hmm. we're running a three-four. You guys have some pretty nasty guys <laughs> yeah. that actually have that aren't just space eaters. I mean, traditionally, and you, you look at Oregon's linebackers and a, a three-four setup, the linebackers often have the better stats. And you don't just want to see a lot of tackles for the linebackers; you want to see tackles for a loss. But the defensive line for Oregon also has some pretty good numbers for a three-four. Um, you have Austin Fallu coming back, Jalen Jenks, Jordan Scott. Um, behind them, there's a little, it's a little less certain, but, uh, those front three, I think certainly set up the defensive line for a good year. Wait, can I just cut in just to read, uh, Jalen Jelk's stat line, 58, 58 tackles, 15 tackles for a loss, seven pass breakups, four quarterback hurries and a punt block. Like that is disgusting. This is a dirty, dirty man. (laughs) Like he's 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 going to wreak havoc. I mean, I'm, I'm six, six. I don't move anything like that. (laughs) He is, yes, he is the latest, although he's a a bit lighter. Oregon has had a nice run of those super tall defensive ends in their 3-4 and that brief foray into a 4-3 with with Brady Hoke. Um, You know, going back to DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead, Jalen Jelks was, it was always assumed that he was the next guy in line to dominate. And he's taken a little while to, to get into the right position, but... The uh, the defense they ran last year with Jim Levitt and, and Joe Salavea up front really took advantage of him. He stayed healthy, which was big for him. And if you watch him play, he's not a particularly large dude. I don't know if he's 260 pounds, 270 pounds to, to play that 3-4 role uh, on the end, but extremely long. His arms are super active and he just he gets into the jerseys of the offensive lineman in front of him so quickly and he plays with a motor and he just his awareness and his his eye for the ball and just as a playmaker is is second to none on this Oregon defense um and then to have that kind of space next to him with Jordan Scott who is maybe 345 maybe more who knows um and then Austin Fallu is over 300 as well they are those front three are pretty much as good as any team, perhaps other than Washington up front. Um, But I I expect a lot from them if they are able to stay healthy, but you're right behind them. There's not a lot. Um, There's a couple of freshmen coming in. Falu's little brother actually comes in. There's a JC guy who redshirt last year, Popo Al Malve. I don't know if that's correct. I I was pretty good with that. I feel good about it. Um, That's legit. There's just, there's not a 
ton there in terms of depth. And that's worrisome. And I think the reason why you saw those numbers be what they were from last year is when the offense has those stretches where they're terrible, somebody has to make those tackles that the defense was on the field a ton last year. So in terms of pure volume, it, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that they were making that many plays because they just had to. Yeah, and when Dan talks about this front three being uh, along the lines of Washington and other teams, I mean, Jordan Scott was a freshman All-American. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see, like you mentioned, what the depth provides, but Oregon's just been recruiting really well and has a great staff that can develop these players. So it'll be really interesting. But when you take a look at the front three and then you look at the back four, this is one of the the top front seven defensive units, I think, in the Pac-12. I mean, you have players like Troy Dye, uh, Keith Sims, Justin Holland, Lamar Winston. Like, these are legit linebackers that I think are just going to wreck a lot of havoc, particularly if there is a little bit more depth on that defensive front and if the offense can stay on the field. What Can you just kind of walk through some of these players and why they're so good and what you expect from them this year? Sure. Well, Troy Dye came in as sort of a safety and it was immediately clear that he had the frame to put on some weight and a nose for the ball and had instincts and basically had to play immediately. He came in as an outside linebacker, moved inside uh, to play when uh, Jim Levitt took over the defense. Lamar Winston is pretty well regarded and athletic. Keith Sims was on the inside, has moved to the outside and should get a good amount of time. Justin Hollins is that sort of stand-up edge rusher in the 3-4. He'll be getting after the quarterback, did a pretty good job disrupting last year. The talent is fine. There's a, a redshirt freshman who should probably end up starting alongside Troy Dye, whose name is Isaac Slade Matausha, Matautia, again, don't don't trust me on the pronunciation, but ISM is the name that a lot of people expect to come in and make an impact. So the the linebacking core has been an issue basically since 2012 when they had Kiko Alonso and Michael Clay. And since then, there's just been a lot of, you know, some individual talent, but still a lot of issues and a lot of missed tackles. You know, Troy Dye has solidified things. Um, the big name to know in terms of incoming freshman, Adrian Jackson was a blue chip from Colorado. I believe the number one player from the state of Colorado. He comes in and, you know, has impressed early on and, you know, looks the part is, you know, physically ready to play in the Pac-12. Beyond that, I don't know that there is another young name, but uh, they should be solid yeah that's you know six. troy die makes, makes yeah, yeah. like troy, most troy teams will want that <laughs> yes Troy Dye makes them solid because he himself is excellent. <laughs> and when we were talking about Colorado in our previous episode, one of the things they were talking about is where are the tackles for a loss going to come from from that team? If if mm-hmm. the front line is eating up space and, and your front line is significantly better than theirs and there will be tackles for a loss from that those front three, the frightening thing is the back four, you're getting tackles for a loss there. So Troy Dye had... 13 and a half tackles for a loss, four pass breakups, an interception, defensive touchdown. He was second team all pack 12 freshman all American in 2016. Keith Sims. I know you guys are really big on him. He had an awesome spring. He was the number 20 outside linebacker in the 2016 class. And I think he was supposed to see the field, but he got injured. Is that kind of what you heard on your front? Yeah, he was, he was on and off. He played some inside, um, later on in the season and it's sort of TBD. I think he's from Maryland or North Carolina or something across the country, but he is, uh, I I don't think there are huge expectations for him, but he should be a contributor. I think on the other side, in terms of tackles for a loss, Justin Hollins would be the name that, uh, that should fill that stat sheet up, especially playing, uh, as he will 
sometimes behind Jalen Jelks, who is going to command a lot of attention. Absolutely. All the stat lines on these guys. And I, I don't like to stat count a lot, but when you have a defensive coordinator like Oregon does and you have the defensive line like Oregon does, I think that's when you mm-hmm. can start looking at these numbers and going, oh, that's why. You know, uh, Justin Holland's 11 and a half tackles for a loss, three quarterback hurries, three forced fumbles and interception. Lamar Winston also had eight tackles for a loss. And like you mentioned, uh, Dan, you have the number 11, number 21, and number 15 linebacker and defensive end stacked up in in that depth chart and that doesn't even include some of the players that saw action last year so Not this bad. this is a legit line and it's very frightening i think the secondary is going to be uh the biggest issue like you had mentioned so rob do you want to kind of walk through a little bit of the secondary and let's see what dan thinks yeah i mean the secondary is kind of a blend of uh youthful promise and uh some more experience at the back end i think when you look at the secondary you're definitely looking at graham and uh, and this guy should be on the all-name team, <laughs> Diomador Lenoir. Lenoir? <laughs> I, I, like Lenoir very, I don't know. I want to put it's this Lenoir, very New Orleans French yes. <laughs> like pronunciation. From Southern California, yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, nice. Of course, right? Um, yeah. But I think both, I mean, both of those guys are very highly rated. Graham played last year, and I think played pretty well. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that you can knock a guy too much for you know playing as he did as a freshman. Um I think when you look at the, the, the safeties, then you have Amadi and McGraw, both of whom, I mean, we're projecting them to be the starters, uh, both seniors, lots of experience. Um, I mean, that's definitely a positive in the safety you know position where you're, you're both having to come up and read and run support and potentially having to drop back and pass. Um, do you expect though that, I mean, I think the question, I guess, if I have it is, is who's the nickelback since Tim Howe, decided not to go to Oregon and decided to come to Arizona of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think a lot of Oregon fans were sort of counting on him to come in and play nickel. Um, and then did the, did the existing two corners, Lenoir and Graham, did they, did they take the kind of step forward? I think so. Yeah. I think those two are going to be pretty good, especially Graham. He, uh, he started off pretty well, took some lumps midway through the season, but finished pretty strong. Um, it, it's again, hard to tell because the, the team was, totally different with and without Justin Herbert in terms of what the defense was asked to do. Um, I'm actually a little more worried about safety than I am corner. Um, McGraw is okay. Nothing special. I don't think. And Ugo Amadi is good. And the the transition to safety from corner last year went pretty well, actually. But behind those two guys, Nick Pickett showed promise last year before he got hurt. And then at that point, you're probably counting on a true freshman in Javon Holland to come in into the rotation. And they add Brian Addison, who becomes an interesting option as a true freshman. He signs late with Oregon um, and has been taking snaps in camp, both at receiver and safety. So in terms of experience, in terms of proven talent, there's not much at safety after Ugo Amadi. And I, I don't know how that manifests itself during the season. As for who plays in the nickel in those types of situations, I imagine you, you might be with a, a true freshman at, at a certain point. It might be, you know, Verone McKinley has impressed early on there. Um, they have a, uh, a junior college guy coming in or who, who is in named Hockey Hacky Woods. Um, Pima College in, in Tucson. That's right, local to, to Arizona, <laughs> and he was a, a sort of late addition to the recruiting class. Um, difficult to say, and it might be Amadi coming up and taking some of those reps and allowing Nick Pickett to slide over because of Amadi's experience playing corner. 
um, and being able to to come in if he has to match up against tight ends or something like that. At least he has safety experience and and awareness of this defense. So no, there there are a couple of questions as it relates to safety that that should worry Oregon fans at this point. Right on. Well, our time is almost up. We mentioned we said 45 minutes. We got a couple minutes over and it sounds like Rob's getting abducted by aliens. So one more question for you. (laughs) There's there's some construction on my street. I can't make them stop. (laughs) Uh, So, Dan, we have been to Eugene had a great like that fan base is I I loved it. It was one of the best experiences I've had going to Autzen. That walk to the stadium when you go down the creek is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The stadium is pristine. The one place that I wish we would have asked you before we went there is we didn't really know where to eat. So if somebody's going out to Eugene, can you give us maybe three and and you can take a, uh, a sample of any type of food? Where would you recommend people go while they're out there? So I feel terrible saying this, but... I haven't been to Eugene since 2011. Oh, snap. Okay. So I will I will give you happily some recommendations, but these are older places that I think are still there. <laughs> but I am not up to date with the best of Eugene eating. And for that, I apologize. Um, I always like going to the Glenwood, which is a breakfast place right by campus and like this converted Victorian two-story house kind of thing. Really good breakfasts and lunches. The grilled cheese and tomato soup is outstanding. Um there's a place called Newman Seafood, and as people know, the Pacific Northwest, excellent seafood, and it's sort of like a fried, you know, fish and chips, fried seafood shack, but uh, kind of nice. So I would recommend that. Um, outside of that, I remember if you want a nicer meal, and this isn't going to mean a whole lot because I haven't been there in a long time. I have no idea if it's still pretty good, but I always did like going to the electric station, which is good beers and just solid not it's not too formal but it's just like if you want like a a decent sit-down meal i enjoyed the electric station um and i'll give you a bonus one too because i always went there and i always enjoyed it i don't know if it's considered to be good and fun but uh pegasus pizza right by campus um good just pizzeria solid place to get a pitcher of beer and some pizza and as a bonus there's a bar in the basement underneath pegasus called fathoms i want to say and that's where Chip Kelly went after games with his friends. Oh, so, nice. Okay. There's your little nugget. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much. I am uh, anybody that's listening to this. If you do not subscribe to the solid verbal, do so. You won't regret it. It's one of the best podcasts out there on college football. It's one of the best podcasts, period. You guys keep that show so fresh and continue to come up with new ideas and, and just make it different each season. And really excited to hear your breakdowns as we move into the college football season. It's kind of fun because we're going through all this seed you know, of prognostication, but right when that season hits, man, like the juices flow and it's really fun to just uh, to really break down what actually happens on the field. Uh, anything else you want to plug, Dan? We'll probably get this out the day of your show. But is there anything else coming down the pipeline that you want to uh, talk about or, or plug? No, just the solid verbal is great. And uh, I would also like to a quick shout out to treating each other nicely. <laughs> Because everybody should treat each other like human beings. That's the other thing I want to promote. You hear that, Twitter? <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> right on. Well, Dan, thank you for joining us. Rob, thank you for your time. And uh, we you. will catch you next week. We are doing uh, Washington State next. So we continue to grind Woo! on.